0: Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David
1: Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world, ever, ever. R is for Reed. Lou Reed. Oh yes, Lewis Allen Reed, to give him his full name, born on the 2nd of March 1942 at Beth El Hospital in Brooklyn and he grew up in Freeport, Long Island the son of Toby and Sidney Reed an accountant. His family was Jewish his father had changed his name from Rabinovich to Reed. Reed said that although he was Jewish, his real god was rock and roll He knew already, didn't he? He He was
0: absolutely rock and roll through and through, Lou Reed, as we will find out. So Reed attended Atkinson Elementary School in Freeport and went on to Freeport junior high school his sister Merrill said that as an adolescent he suffered panic attacks became socially awkward and possessed a fragile temperament but was highly focused on things that he liked mainly music Uh, He seemed to have a lot of those, uh, you can't call them qualities, but uh, (laughs) traits later on in his years, didn't he? Having learned to play the guitar from the radio, he developed an early interest in rock and roll and rhythm
1: and blues and during high school played in several bands. He began experimenting with drugs at the age of 16. His first recording was as a member of a do-what band called the Jades and his love of playing music and his desire to play gigs brought him into confrontation with his anxious and unaccommodating parents, all right? So there's a generational divide going on here. His sister recalled that during his first year in college, he was brought home one day, having had a mental breakdown, after which he remained depressed, anxious, and socially unresponsive for a time, and that his parents were having difficulty... Kind of coping with the problems as you would do, really. Yeah, he sounded like he had a very troubled childhood, didn't he? So,
0: yeah. uh, visiting a psychologist, Reed's parents were made to feel guilty as inadequate parents and consented to electroconvulsive therapy (ECT). Mm. Reed appeared to blame his father for the treatment to which he had been subjected. He wrote the experience in his 1974
1: song "Kill the Sons," which is a really great tune. Yeah, off a Apache album. Mm, yeah, Reed later recalled the experience as having been traumatic and leading to memory loss. He believed he was. Treated to dispel his feelings of homosexuality, and after Reed's death, his sister denied the ECT treatments were intended to suppress his homosexual urges, asserting instead that their parents had been told by his doctors that ECT was necessary to treat Reed's mental and behavioural issues. I mean, it's a desperate measure, this. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. There I mean, was. they didn't know what they were doing, did they? No, they did
0: like, I mean, these poor people were like guinea pigs, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, upon his recovery from his illness and associated treatment, Reed resumed his education at Syracuse University in 1960, studying journalism, film directing, and creative writing. He was a platoon leader in the Reserves Officer's Training Corps. I can't
1: find that so hard to believe and take yeah.
0: in. He was probably forced into that, you would not yeah. imagine. You yeah. know, just trying to make him be a, a man yeah, a in inverted commas. In discipline and... and all the rest of it, oh, yeah. like yeah, and he said he was later expelled from the programme for
1: holding an unloaded gun to his superior's head. Oh, I can not believe that. In 1961, he began hosting a late-night radio show on WAER called Excursions on a Wobbly Rail, named after a tune by pianist Cecil Taylor. The programme typically featured do what, rhythm and blues and jazz, particularly the free jazz that came around in the mid-50s. Okay, so Reed said that when he
0: started out, he was inspired by such musicians as Ornette Coleman, and he said that his guitar playing
1: on European Sun was his way of trying to imitate Coleman's saxophone. That's interesting, isn't it? Because didn't Chuck Berry try and imitate a saxophone? Was it Louis Jordan's, I think? Really? That's what he was trying to do on guitar, yeah. Wow. At Syracuse University, he studied under poet Delmore Schwartz, who said, he was the first great person I ever met, and they became friends. He credited Schwartz with showing him how, with the simplest language imaginable And very short, you can accomplish the most astonishing heights. Wow, okay, so
0: Reed recorded My House from his album The Blue Mask as a tribute to his late mentor. He later said that his goals as a writer were to bring the sensitivities of the novel to rock music or
1: to write the great American novel in a record album. While at Syracuse, Reed was also introduced to heroin for the first time and quickly contracted hepatitis. Sterling Morrison met Reed while he was visiting his mutual friend Jim Tucker, the older brother of uh, Mo Tucker, went on to drum for her VU, of course, who was at school there. So, Reed graduated from Syracuse University's College of Arts and
0: Sciences with a BA in English in June 1964. In 1964, Reed moved to New York City to work as an in house songwriter for Pickwick Records. That year, he wrote and recorded the single The Ostrich, a parody of popular dance songs of the time,
1: which included the lines such as, put your head on the floor and have somebody step on it. It's (laughs) a great tune, that. Oh, it is. It really, really is great. His employers felt that the song had hit potential and they got together a supporting band to help promote the recording. The ad hoc band, called The Primitives, included Welsh musician John Cale, who'd recently moved to New York to study under Lamont Young and his Theatre of Eternal Music, along with Tony Conrad. Cale and Conrad were surprised to find that, for The Ostrich, Reed. Tuned each string of his guitar to the same note, which they began to call his ostrich guitar tuning, which makes sense. It does. Uh, Kale was impressed by Reed's early repertoire, including the song Heroine, and a partnership began to evolve. So, we're going to get into VU here. We, we are going to cover them in V, aren't we? So, we're going to sort of bypass most of this now.
0: We will, yeah. Lou Reed did leave the Velvet Underground in August 1970, and there's a famous story about Bowie going to see them they? Oh, in, yes. in New York and yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, Lou Reed then moved to his parents' home on Long Island and took a job at his father's tax accounting firm as a tax. I pissed. What? <laughs> uh, by his own account, earning $40 a week. In 1971, he signed a recording contract with RCA Records and recorded his first solo album at Morgan Studios in Wilsdon, London, with session musicians including Steve Howe and Rick Wakeman from the band Yes. I've got to say, I'm not really that overly familiar with this record, but you know it pretty well, don't you? Yeah, I absolutely love some of it, but it is, uh, you know, um, obviously the songs are there. And the songs are great, but it's been well documented that he was just not interested mm, at all. Yeah, And I think it was
1: a pretty dispiriting affair for, for everybody. I think so. I think the you know, Steve Howe and Rick Wakeman weren't happy, were they? I think they felt dismissed by... It- Reed's attitude more than but, yeah, and it,
0: I mean the thing is that it also had Berlin on there. Mm. You know, it's got Berlin the yeah. song, which then obviously triggered off. This is the interesting thing. I forgot about this, but that triggered off the album Berlin, yeah, yeah. which you know is a, is a is a masterpiece for my mind, largely or at least in part uh, due to Bob Ezrin and his arrangements on yes. it and, and the production on it. Yeah. Uh, but I did say to Lou Reed uh, when I was talking to him about Berlin, which was the second of two interviews that I did. The first interview I got. Away with mm. just about the second interview. Um, I said to him, You know, okay, uh, he was being he was being arsey anyway, mm. and he was in London, I was mm. in um, Manchester, and he was being arsey. I could be hearing being horrible to people in the room with him, right. at the other end. Mm. And then I said to him, Okay, so, um, Berlin the Album, yes, I said, Can you tell me how that one song on the debut album triggered off this masterpiece, you know, this rock opera, yeah. which he was happy to call it? That didn't upset him, and he went, Are you serious? Really? Yeah. And it was like, oh, God, here we go. (laughs) You know, and uh, obviously he hates journalists and uh, anybody on the periphery asking him questions. But in saying that, you know, I just reflected on it later. And the bottom line is that a lot of the songs that he used for Berlin, for Transformer, were just all found in the cupboard and just, you know, it almost square pegs in round holes yeah. he just took the songs changed some of the words and then it was a concept album made up of all these mishmash of different songs it did work like i say i oh, think brilliantly. It's, it's brilliant but it is. But, he, but he wouldn't tell me he wouldn't admit that it was just a standalone mm. song about two people you know drinking together Yeah. and then it came up with this other album so mm. yeah, I, I was i was well miffed and then i tell you what after about after about Mm, five minutes of him being an arse, I just went, I'll tell you what, Lou, we'll
1: call it quits there, eh? And went, yes, I think we should. Well, the weird thing about, you obviously got him on the wrong side of something because I never interviewed Lou Reed. I sort of wanted to, but at the same time, I knew he had this really kind of rotten reputation as an interviewee. But uh, from what I gather, people who did talk to him, he would be nice on one phone call, or one interview, and then the next one along, he'd just clam up and just be like he was with you. So maybe the one before was a good one, and the one after you was a good one. It just seemed to work like that, and it, not quite random. There was a kind of method to it, you know. I think I probably triggered something up. <laughs> well, I was asking him awkward questions, because I grew up with that album, and yeah. I didn't know it, and I didn't know what I was on
0: about. I don't generally, but I did on that occasion. But the thing was, and you know this already, Bob, but in the interview previous... Like I say, that was about Berlin as well, and I should never have done the second one because I got away with it, and that could have gone down on my CV as a man who got away talking to Lou Reed once. That would have been fine. (laughs) I wouldn't have been happy with that. But at the end of that first interview... I did say to him, oh, by the way, before you go, I've got a plaque at home awarded to you, Lou, uh, for songwriting services from a magazine called Stereo, I think it was. Mm. And I said, "Um, do you remember it? And he went, yes, I do. It's black, yeah. I went, that's right, yeah, it's a black plaque to you for songwriting services for Berlin. I said, why have I got it? He went, I don't know, maybe you stole it. (laughs) So I said, no, I didn't steal it. He went well, maybe I threw it out of the window one day. I said, well, maybe. I said, but I've got it uh, anyway. He went, okay. So I said, uh, would you like it back? And he was like, no, um, no. um, no, it no caught it, him off it, guard. It's yeah. yours. I said, no, it's not. It's quite painfully yours. It's got your <laughs> name on it. Uh, I said, I'll get it to you. And he went, oh, uh, well, that's really kind of you, but you don't have to do that. You've bought it. I said, yeah, don't worry. And I did. I, I went to the Berlin show at the Apollo in Manchester, mm. And I left it with Sarge, who was the guy who looked after the door there, worked with Hucky from New Order. Yeah. And that was it. And I went to see the show that night, and it was and it was amazing. You had Steve Hunter playing guitar with yeah, him. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was there, yeah. Same people, you know, largely the same people on yeah. the album. And then it was around about, yeah, three weeks later, maybe a little bit less, but I was just about to sit down and have some food. And the phone goes, and uh, and it's Lou Reed's tour manager. Right. So I just thought, oh, he's ringing up to say thank you. Yeah, cool. Mm. And so he said, oh, Mark, yeah, blah blah blah. Uh, okay, I've got uh, I've got someone here for you. So then it's passed the phone over, and it's like, uh, Mark, I'm going, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's Lou. I'm going, oh, I'm, all right, Lou. Yes, I'm okay. Yeah. I said, I just want to thank you very much for giving me this oh, hey. this plaque back. And he and he and he told the story that they were all on stage, all the musicians. And the tour manager came up and gave him this package which he'd opened because it could have been anything, right? To be <laughs> yeah, the fair honest, enough. From yeah, a yeah. previous journalist from 1973, it could have been anything. <laughs> yeah. um, and Lou Reed just told me that he, he pulled it out and he looked at it and he remembered it, then he remembered the conversation and he held it up and he told everybody what had happened and they all started cheering. Right. And, and he said, he's, he's just really great And can I give you some money? I said, no, it's fine. Seriously? Think, yeah, wow. it cost me about, I think I spent about 90 quid on it. Right. And the weird thing is also, and I wished I'd bought it, there was also a, a gold disc for Berlin, a legitimate gold Ooh. disc on eBay at the same time from the same seller. Right, I wish I'd bought that as well, and I did tell him that, and he said, "Oh, it was it was just a really generous thing, and I'm I'm so grateful uh, to you for doing this for me. That's a really good." Year. It, it, if you're happy, I'm happy. That's brilliant. I've, I've done a good thing for Lou Reed. I, you Whoa, know, way. I mean, I, and then it was only about two months later when he tore me a new ass. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> he already, you forgot who you were. He, be, of course no he offense, of course obviously. He had. I mean, you're talking before about the fact that we made uh, Berlin from a lot of songs he just found in the back of cupboards and all the rest of it. That applies to the first album as well, doesn't yeah. it? Because you've got various unreleased VU songs on there. Some of them have been earmarked for loaded and then shelved. And the album was overlooked, wasn't it, by most pop critics, although uh, Stephen Holden in Rolling Stone called it an almost perfect album which embodied the spirit of the Velvets. The breakthrough, of course, was Transformer, released in November 72. So uh, Lou Reed married Betty Kronstadt in 1973. She later said he'd been a violent drunk
0: when on tour. Berlin, July 1973, was a concept album about two junkies in love in the city. The songs variously concerned domestic violence, adultery, prostitution and suicide. Response to Berlin at the time of its release was negative, with Rolling Stone
1: pronouncing it a disaster, darling. Oh, we need a Review's Amnesty there, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I think it's since been seen as a classic. Sally Can't Dance arrived in August 1974 and became Reed's highest charting album in the States. I didn't realise that. Mm. Uh, Got to number 10 during a 14-week stay on the Billboard chart. Metal Machine Music, now then, 1975, was an hour of modulated feedback and guitar effects. Good luck working your way through that if you've never heard that before. Uh, Critics interpreted it as a gesture of contempt, an attempt to break his contract with RCA, or to alienate his less sophisticated fans. Reed himself claimed that the album was a genuine artistic effort, even suggesting that uh, quotations of classical music could be found buried amongst all the feedback. Mm. The album was reportedly returned to stores by the thousands and was withdrawn after just a few weeks.
0: Yeah, it's a bit crackers, really. I mean, I I did buy the album and I, you know, and I I did keep it, but yeah, yeah, I I didn't listen to it. You listen to a little bit of it and you think, what's going on? Yeah. And and there's a little bit actually on um, on the album um, Take No Prisoners where there's some feedback and he goes, that's how it goes. And he goes right. oh, that's how Metal Machine was born. Uh, and right. that is a great album, Take No Prisoners. But yeah, he did always say that he was kind of like trying to in- invent. Industrial music, or yeah. kind of verging on strange, noisy, uh, stroke ambient music yeah. in parts, but it really did seem at the time the group we've got the greatest cover. Oh, it's a brilliant cover. The cover <laughs> is from cover. that tour that I saw yeah. him playing on. I love the cover, yeah. but the record itself—I maybe I must be one of his less sophisticated listeners.
1: <laughs> Same here. But then again, in later, you know, not long before he died, wasn't there an orchestra? Was it in Berlin that reinterpreted it as a as a classical recording? You know, tried to find this merit in it, this great artistic merit. I'm not at all surprised. And there'll be people out there who are listening to this quite possibly who love it. Oh,
0: yeah. It's all down to opinion, and yeah. that's absolutely fine. But I really did think it was just an attempt to get off RCA. But Definitely. there you go. Uh, maybe. I'm just a cynic as well as unsophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with the second one, anyway. So, 1976 Coney Island Baby was dedicated to Reed's partner, Rachel, a transgender woman Reed dated and lived with for three years. Rachel also appears
1: in the photos of the cover of Reed's 77 best of album, Walk on the Wild Side. Rock and Roll Heart was his 1976 debut for his new label, Arista. Then, Street Hustle 1978 was released in the midst of the punk scene that he'd helped to inspire.
0: Yeah, so, you know, those Coney Island Baby and Rock and Roll, I, I bought them both, and I wasn't really taken with them. And mm. again, there were some songs from the back of the cupboards in those, weren't they? Like, She's My Best Friend, I yeah, think, it is okay. one of them. Uh, but Street Hustle blew me away. And the Street Hassle, for my money, is the last truly remarkable Lou Reed record. And again, it's only my opinion. And a load of people love New York. I thought New York was pretty pretentious. And I thought that it was really him bending over backwards to try and do what we
1: mentioned earlier about writing the great American uh, novel, but for a record. And also, you can imagine the record company as well saying, you know what you really need to do here? Concept about... Well where else would you do on New York City, you know? It smacked of being a bit contrived in it at the time, I think. And, and the King of New York and all that kind yeah. of stuff.
0: I, I have to say that I loved the bells as well. I thought that was a great album. It's got Niels Lofgren on it, yeah. hasn't it? And Don Cherry. Hmm. Uh, apparently at the same time, he appeared as a sleazy record producer in Paul Simon's film One Trick Pony. I haven't seen that. Nineteen seventy nine. I didn't know that either.
1: Reed married British designer Sylvia Morales in nineteen eighty. After Legendary Hearts came out in eighty three and then New Sensations, Reed was sufficiently re established as a public figure to become spokesman for Honda Motorcycles. Mm. Mm. Uh, in 1989, the album New York, here we go, which commented on crime,
0: AIDS, Jesse Jackson, Kurt Waldheim and Pope John Paul II became his second gold-certified work when it passed 500,000 sales in 1997. Reed was nominated for a
1: Grammy Award for
0: the album. Yeah, it did sell very Just well. Just me then.
1: Uh, and me. Uh, Reed met John Cale for the first time in decades at Andy Warhol's funeral in 1987, and then they started working together on the album Songs for Drella, Drella being the name they would give to uh, Warhol, wasn't it, in April 1990, which is a, a song cycle, really. On the album, Reed sings of his love for his late friend and criticises both the doctors, who are unable to save Warhol's life, and Warhol's would-be assassin, Valerie Solanus. Yeah, and his chest was about uh, that uh, particular yeah. attack, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, from the late
0: 1990s, Reed was romantically linked to musician, multimedia, and performance artist Laurie Anderson, and the two worked together on several recordings. They married on the 12th of April 2008. Reed had suffered hepatitis and diabetes for several years. He had practised Tai Chi during the last part of his life and had developed liver cancer. In May 2013, he underwent a liver transplant at the Cleveland Clinic. So it's a serious turn in his life, but uh, just going back to the Tai Chi thing, Mm. I mean, he took that really seriously. And and you saw that show, didn't you? I did see that show, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was a remarkable show, really. But, I mean, uh, they had the Tai Chi guy doing it. Which there was sniggering going on. I know it might be a bit childish, that, but it seemed a little bit strange at the time. Mm. It looked like a very kind of serene Bez. Happy Mondays
1: <laughs> but I don't the, remember that Well, you're right though it was just a little bit embarrassing for me I mean really the idea of doing a martial art and rock music they should be kept separate well you can't devalue. yeah well it devalues each of them really it wasn't even throwing shapes it just didn't work
0: at all not for me either but maybe I need to get a band together and, and you could throw people around the stage oh, bobbing it and with sticks I'd buy a ticket <laughs> and the best thing about that show actually I have to say was that Anthony Anthony Hegarty was oh, a backing yes. singer and he did yeah. Candy Says and that was the best thing for me on the whole night that was just a remarkable thing and Anthony
1: and the Johnsons you know divide people but I love them on October 27th 2013 Lou Reed died from liver disease at his home in East Hampton New York aged 71 and he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Patti Smith in April
0: 2015 The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes Right, so we're going to look at the Bowie connection. We are, yeah. A lot of this, as usual, comes from uh, Kevin Kahn's book, Mm. Any Day Now. So as early as March 1967, Bowie was including a version of Lou Reed's Velvet Underground tune, I'm Waiting for the Man at Live Gigs with the Riot Squad. In April that year, he recorded it during sessions for his debut LP.
1: Uh, Bowie also used the arrangement from Venus in Furs for his own little toy soldier. That's great, isn't he? Determined to get some VU in there somewhere. Yep. During his first visit to the States in late January 1971, Bowie went to see VU at the Electric Circus in Manhattan. Here's that great story. Unaware that they had a new lineup. I think he even thought John Cale was still in them at that point. Did he? Uh, Lou Reed had left, replaced by Doug Yule. Bowie said later, afterwards, I waited at the backstage door and I was banging on it. And Lou comes out and I went on and on and on about how great I thought it was. And at the end of the conversation, he says look, actually buddy, my name's Doug Yule. I thought, oh no, I was so embarrassed because I thought I'd been talking to Lou Reed for about 15 minutes. Yeah, legendary story that. Uh, When Bowie
0: signed to RCA at a reception in New York in September 1971, Lou Reed and girlfriend Betty Cronstadt were amongst the guests. Reed then went to visit Bowie and Mick Ronson at their hotel where he played them a selection of songs from his forthcoming solo album, which he planned to record in London with
1: RCA's in-house producer Richard Robinson. Lou Reed arrived in London in January 1972 to start recording his new solo album at Morgan Studios again in Wilsdon accompanied by Robinson Reid chose Morgan because he liked Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story which had been made there and at the same time while all this was going on Bowie and his band were rehearsing the Ziggy album So during a three day promo
0: trip to New York in June 1972 Bowie invited Reid to play his first gig in the UK at a charity
1: show at the Royal Festival Hall which he and the Spiders are headlining So in July 1972 Reid joined Bowie and the Spiders for rehearsals in Greenwich for the following night's show at the Royal Festival Hall in aid of Friends of the Earth Proceeds from the gig are earmarked for the Save the Whale Fund. At the show itself read, billed as Bowie's very special guest was drunk and appeared halfway through the set doing three VU tunes and waiting for the man, White Light, White Heat and Sweet Jane. On the 14th of July
0: 1972, Reed played his first ever solo gig at the King's Cross Cinema in London with Bowie and Angie and Mick Ronson in the audience. Two days later, Bowie announced to the press that he'd been asked to produce Reed's solo album. He also tells the media I'd never heard this, that Keith Moon would be the drummer
1: on the sessions and Klaus Vormann, the bassist. Neither. No, I, I until I was doing research for this, that was the first time I'd heard that Keith yeah. Moon story. Yeah. While preparing for the famous Ziggy gig at the Rainbow, Bowie and Ronson dashed back and forth to produce Transformer, at Trident Studios and the whole thing was done in 10 days apparently. Things got a little bit heated in the studio at times with Reed directing abuse at both Bowie and Ronson. Although Reed recalled later, the only person in the world with a tempo more vile than mine is David Bowie. Mm. Uh, Bowie and Reed fell out during a late night meeting which led to
0: Reed hitting Bowie. Bowie had told Reed that he would have to clean up his act if they were to work together again. When it came time to record Walk on the Wild Side, Bowie called on his old saxophone teacher, Ronnie Ross, to play the solo near the end. He got 50 quid. Mm. Uh, Ross had never heard of Lou Reed
1: and didn't even recognise Bowie when he arrived at the studio because he had his makeup on. (laughs) They probably hadn't seen him since the mid-60s, had he? Uh, with Keith Moon already committed to going on tour with The Who, Richie Dahmer of Mick Abraham's band was brought in instead, although John Halsey did most of the drum work on John the album. John Halsey
0: being Barry Wham of, um, oh, of, uh, of the Rutles and uh, a legend in himself. So uh, the, the the personnel, Lou Reed, lead vocals, rhythm guitar.
1: And then you got Mick Ronson, lead guitar, piano, recorder, string arrangements, crucially.
0: Yeah, David Bowie, the world's best ever backing vocals,
1: keyboards, acoustic guitar on wagon wheel and walk on the wild side. Uh, how can you forget Herbie Flowers, bass guitar, of course, uh, that famous one on Walk on the Wild Side. Also plays Tuba on Goodnight Ladies and Makeup. Yeah, and as we've just mentioned, John Halsey on drums, additional personnel. You got Trevor Boulder on Trumpet. Ronnie Ross, just mentioned saxophone. Thunder Thighs doing backing vocals. Barry D'Souza on drums. Richie Dharma, as mentioned, on drums. Klaus Vormann, bass guitar on Perfect Day, Goodnight Ladies, Satellite of Love, and Makeup. I see, I didn't realise actually that no. he was on all those. Okay, no. fair dues. And of course, on the production side, you got David Bowie and Mick Ronson, and engineered by Ken Scott. So, Transformer, as with its predecessor, Lou Reed, it contained songs Reed wrote
0: whilst in the Velvet Underground. Four out of ten, in fact, ah. as we said. Andy's Chess was first recorded by the band in 1969, and Satellite of Love demoed in 1970. These versions were released on VU
1: and Peel Slowly and C, respectively. For Transformer, the original up-tempo pace of these songs was slowed down. In the meantime, New York Telephone Conversation and Goodnight Ladies are known to have been played live during VU's summer 1970 residency at Max's Kansas City. The latter takes its title from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night, good night. Which in itself is a quote. I know you know this, Mark, from Ophelia in, in Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. But we contributed the writing of Wagon Wheel as well, though he wasn't credited. Okie dokie. As in Reed's Velvet Underground days, the connection to artist Andy Warhol remained strong.
0: According to Reed, Warhol told him that he should write a song about someone vicious. When Reed asked what he
1: meant by vicious, Warhol replied, "Oh, you know, uh, like I hit you with a flower." Uh, the resulting song was naturally vicious. Yeah. So as we know, transform. Produced by Bowie and Ronson. Bowie had obliquely referenced the Velvet Underground in the cover notes of Hunky Dory. Regularly, of course, we know that he's performed White Light, White Heat and I'm Waiting for the Man in concerts and during the BBC on the sessions in the uh, the early 70s. He did. He even began recording White Light, White Heat for inclusion
0: on pinups, but it was never completed. Ronson ended up using the backing track for his solo album, Play Don't Worry, in 1974. The first single from the album, Walk on the Wild Side, became an international success despite its controversial subject matter. The song's lyrics mention transgender issues, sex acts and drugs causing it to be edited in some countries and banned in others, but not the BBC.
1: No! Who obviously, the upper echelons, didn't have a clue what the (laughs) hell he was talking
0: about, which (laughs) makes me laugh. The
1: thing is, the BBC would ban singles, wouldn't they, for the most innocuous reasons, and they let that go. It's pretty damn graphic, isn't it, some of it? So that is hilarious. The
0: very fact that they didn't know what some of the phrases meant just tells the picture, doesn't it?
1: Each of the song's five verses describes a person who'd been a fixture at the factory during the mid to late 60s. So you've got... Hollywood Woodlawn, Candy Darling, Little Joe, D'Alessandro, Sugar Plum Fairy, Joe Campbell and Jackie Curtis. Uh, interestingly, Transformer engineer Ken Scott talking about uh, making the album in 2001, he said... Working with Lou Reed was very different from working with David. Lou was so out of it the whole time, which David never was. I recently met Lou in New York for a TV documentary, the first time since we actually made the Transformer album. It was so funny because he didn't have a clue who I was. He just had no memory of me whatsoever. Kel surprise. When Bowie and Ronson produced Mott the Hoople's All The Young Dudes album that summer,
0: Reed was brought in to do a guide vocal for Ian Hunter on Sweet Jane. After Bowie had retired Ziggy at the Hammersmith Odeon in July 1973, Reed was among the guests at the after-show party at London's Cafe Royale, and um, there is that famous photograph in there as yeah, well. There? Yeah. Well, there's a photograph, uh, funnily enough, whereby um, you've got Mick Jagger and Bowie and Lou Reed, and Lou Reed is leaning over, I think that's the way that it is, to uh, Bowie. all they're leaning towards each other. It was always suggested that they were trying to kiss each other, mm. which is just ridiculous. And, yeah. and Mick Jagger sat there in the middle just looking down, probably probably on his mobile phone. <laughs> yeah, he would have been in 1973, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and prior to going to Paris to record pin-ups, Bowie dropped in at Morgan Studios to visit Reed whilst he was recording
1: Berlin, I bet that that was a right oh, yeah. done. <laughs> Lou Reed was a thorny character and there was a notorious incident, wasn't there? In 1979, a fight broke out at the dinner table between Lou Reed and Bowie at the Chelsea Rendezvous restaurant in London. Reed went for Bowie after Bowie advised him to clean up his axe, shouting, don't you ever say that to me, don't you ever fucking say that to me. Ooh. According to Alan Jones, then with Melody Maker, you know Alan Jones, don't I you? I do know Alan, Lowe, I? Excellent, yeah. <laughs> this is what Alan
0: said. I was recently moved to reminisce about the night Lou Reed invited me to dinner after a show at the Hammersmith Odeon." an occasion that famously ended up in chaos when he was annoyed by something Davy Bowie said to him that sparked off quite a lively assault Lou smacking Bowie somewhat savagely
1: around the head So he continues, what David actually said to Lou to spark off the assault has long since been the subject of much speculation. Just before it all went off, the pair took a circuit of the restaurant in Knightsbridge where we were eating, toasting each other and their renewed friendship. (laughs) (laughs) Not for long. Uh, Whatever David said that ignited Lou's fury, he
0: made the mistake of repeating within minutes, thus provoking another flurry of slaps and punches and Lou's dramatic departure. Frog marched out in the grip of his own minders, probably for his own good as much as Bowie's or anyone else's. Hello,
1: what a picture that paints. Yeah. Uh, Alan Jones goes on to say uh, my thanks here to Chuck Hammer who played that evening with Lou at Hammersmith and has replied to my post with the following email which takes the story on a little further. So the words of Chuck Hammer now. He says, as a guitarist in the Lou Reed band at that time I was actually sitting next to both David and Lou at dinner when this exchange took place. I can tell you exactly what transpired verbally. Here we go. Lou had been discussing
0: details regarding his upcoming new album as yet unrecorded. Lou asked David if he would be interested in producing the record and David replied yes but only upon the condition that Lou would stop drinking and clean up his act and upon that reply the aforementioned chaos ensued wow. it should be noted that this verbal bantering also continued into the night back at the hotel with Bowie in the hallway demanding that Lou read come out and fight like a man <laughs> <I love that. laughs> and you can imagine Davey Bowie stood there, you know in his Japanese print jump, yeah, jumpsuit yeah. <laughs> with platform boots come out and fight like a man eventually all quietened down as Lou never reappeared to
1: continue the fight and was most likely already fast asleep oh, I love that that's <laughs> great Despite all that, of course, they remained uh, fast friends, didn't they? Yeah. Right to the end. Talking to Classic Rock magazine some years ago, Lou Reed remembered of Bowie. He said, how can I remember my first impression of David Bowie? David and I are friends to this day. He's very smart and very, very talented. And I met him in New York and thought, this guy would be a fun guy to work with. Fun guy, mm, fun relationship, probably not. Right. We could really bring something to the dance. Asked about Mick Ronson's arrangements on Transformer.
0: He said, Mick Ronson's arrangements were killer. The thing about Rono was that I could never understand a word that he said. It's like, it's from Hull. You have to ask him eight times to say something absolutely incomprehensible. I mean, sweet guy, but incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, yeah, the, but listen to the arrangement of Perfect Day. Well, yeah, you, absolutely. You can't knock that. He carries on. That's Ronson, he says. Uh, but David is no slouch either. we were rehearsing for our little show and we're doing Satellite of Love. And we're doing the real background part at the end. And the guys are really admiring David and going, Holy shit, what a part that is. He outdid himself. It, they are the
0: greatest backing vocals ever. You can include the Beach Boys and whoever you like in there, the, the Bee Gees, whoever you yeah. want. Go for it. If you don't know the end of Satellite of Love by Lou Reed, then go and listen to it. And if you do, then surely you will agree. Yeah. Reed was a guest at Bowie's 50th birthday bash at Madison Square Garden in January 1997, introducing Reed as a king of New York. The pair performed Queen Bitch. That was followed by a trio of Reed Penn songs, I'm Waiting for the Man, Dirty Boulevard, and White Light, White Heat. And as we know, you got an invite to that, didn't you? But you didn't go... Yeah, there's uh, two things that particularly stick him craw that I didn't attend that I could have done, and that was one. It would have taken a right old effort, but, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. oh, oh, for a time machine. Yeah. And the other one was his uh, his, his return to Glastonbury, but uh, yeah. th-
1: that we've already been there as well. All right, and when Lurie died in 2013, Bowie was amongst many people paying tribute and just simply called him the master.
0: So, I mean, it was a a thorny relationship, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, Bowie knew what he wanted. Bowie Mm. was... uh, And the same thing, you look at Mott the Hoople. Mm. He, He transformed Mott the Hoople from one band to another, didn't he? Yes. I doubt very much that he actually intended to do that. But I suppose when uh, Mott the Hooper were doing what we call the first half of their two-part lifespan, if you mm. like, mm. Uh, if you don't count the reunions, they did <laughs> they did appeal to the hairy ass builders and rockers, didn't they? They did, indeed. And then the glam kids came along on the back of all the young dudes, Mick Ralph's left, formed Bad Company and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for uh, Lou Reed, I think it did also kind of stick in his craw uh, for quite a long time, that Transformer was seen as a glam album and he was seen as a glam star because he never really embraced that at all, would he? And, and you can understand why. Yeah,
1: not at all. I, mean, I think there's a quote. Isn't there a quote by him? Because I think a lot of... He was so narked by the fact that following that album, a lot of people compared him to Bowie and said even suggested maybe you're a bit of a protégé, you know, which is ridiculous. It would really get his hackles up, mm. I can imagine. And he did say, he said, I'm not like Bowie at all, really. You know, right. I'm more kind of hardcore rock and roll. That's how he saw himself. Yeah, and if you listen to the Velvet Underground stuff, I mean, and again,
0: look at the Velvet Underground's first album. How must that have sounded when it oh. came out? That just absolutely blew everybody away. Mm. And if you look at a band like Can, who changed, you know, I mean, they're so influential. Can, yeah, they base their career on the first Velvet Underground album. They were just inspired and totally transformed by it and transfixed. Yeah. And then you look at White Light, White Heat, which is a, a very different album, but again, groundbreaking. Oh. You got you know Lady Godiva's Operation and the Gift. I know uh, both John Cale vocals. Mm. And if you listen to Lady Godiva's Operation in stereo and I played it on the radio and you've got Lou Reed over there and you've got the music over there. If you haven't got one speaker working, you've either got an <laughs> instrumental or if it's the other one, it's just John Cale reading this mad story out yeah, with Lou Reed interjecting every now and then. It's yeah.
1: just uh, absolutely amazing. Those interjections are brilliant, aren't they? First time I heard that, I think, what is this? Yeah. You know, at
0: home in my bedroom? Or it's just crazy. If you look also at the, his relationship with John Cale. Mm. Now, that's really interesting because, I mean, if you look at what Lou Reed was doing, writing stuff like The Ostrich, he was writing great rock and roll songs, and we know that's the real core of him. Yeah. But the, the Velvet Underground, defiantly rock and roll, but they really twisted rock and roll like nobody before. And and I think that was largely due to John Cale. Yes. Obviously, he had the avant-garde side to him with John Cage yeah. and the viola and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so without John Cale involved in The Velvet Underground, they probably would, you can only speculate, but you, they probably would have been a bit more of a straightforward
1: beast, wouldn't they? Yeah, you know, all dressed in leather. Before, you know, they were playing at the factory and uh, under the auspices of Andy Warhol, they were just playing high school dances and stuff, weren't they? A pretty straight rock and roll band, you know, in name anyway. Yeah, and then you look at the first album that they did without John Cale and it's a pretty straightforward,
0: yeah. I mean, there's some beautiful songs on there and it's a great record and very influential for a different group of bands. Yeah. A lot of the indie bands are really, really uh, influenced by the Velvet Underground's third album and I would say also Loaded. Loaded, definitely, yes. But if you look at at bands like Cannes, bands mm. that kind of like, again, for their own part, just wanted to rip things up and just mm. not do things
1: like it had been done
0: before, they did actually use the Velvet Underground as a template.
1: They did, definitely, because I know, um, uh, Oh, what's his face, uh, Ermin Schmidt went over to New York in '66, didn't he? And what's he... his face? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ermin. And he went over. In fact, we were talk... I was interviewing him quite recently about this, and he said, obviously, you know, he grew up listening to classical music and didn't realize when he got to New York, you could actually have everything in one. You know, he didn't have to have. You know, classical music on this side, rock and roll on the other. He saw the VU and he saw Lamont Young and everybody else and what they were doing, and just realised actually you can have everything in one big pot and just see how it sounds.
0: Yeah, and there's a great story as well about Pete Frame, hello Pete, who did the uh, legendary rock and roll family trees and and those TV programs that were based on them as well. He, yeah, all based on Pete's research. And I've got his book somewhere with the different. And if you look at like Deep Purple, you got the family tree. Yeah, you can it's imagine it it's sprawling and all over the place. But he was in New York in 1966, ah. and there was just a doorway there and it said come inside and watch the Velvet Underground. And he did. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. and so it, it, one of the few people to have ever, ever have seen the Velvet Underground. Do you know, and the Velvet Underground did come over here with Doug Ewell and do a tour. Yeah, didn't they? did they play at the Halls with Hall or the ICA building maybe in Manchester? But they came over the Velvet Underground yeah. without Lou Reed, and that would have been very confusing as well. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I think they kept it a little bit kind of quiet. I mean, there was the album Squeeze, wasn't there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. which I did buy and I did take back, and is now worth a fortune. It is. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I don't think it was. Like I say, he had curly hair like Lou Reed, and Must have been a lot of people going there. did think he was watching the Probably. actual Velvet Underground
1: yeah I did interview Doug Yule a few years ago about Squeeze actually and just about all that stuff and uh, I must dig that out yeah mm. you must do but I think the you know the bottom line I think the friendship between Lou Reed and Bowie was based on a lot of mutual respect but also competitiveness it was the same with John Cale wasn't it I think that's what drove Lou Reed a lot of ways yeah and we'll also be talking about Roxy music but
0: the funny thing is that uh, uh, Brian Ferry was mad on Roxy music mm. you, you possibly couldn't tell from the Roxy tunes uh, a little bit of the adventure in there you know uh, but uh, the great thing was that he loved Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and John Cale. And uh, we know that uh, Lou Reed supposedly kicked John Cale out because he was becoming a focal point. Yeah. And people were very interested in the kind of upside-down stuff that he would do. Mm. And then what happens? He eventually brings uh, Brian Eno yes. into Roxy Music and eventually kicks him out because he becomes a focal point Absolutely. for people <laughs> and doing all the upside-down stuff. So. Learn
1: the lessons. The HZ of David
0: Bowie was written By Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next
1: episode, Reality, Mick Rock, Rupert the Riley.